Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Pastor Richard Wesley Johnson. And I am Dr. Corey Little Edwards, and this is the Elusive Dream Podcast. Season two, our sophomore season. We're so grateful the listeners who tune in each episode that drops. Just a reminder, you know you can find this wherever you listen to podcasts, and we really appreciate all of the shares and the feedback as well as the, what do you call those, stars? Yes. Give us some stars. I Lots need a of goal. stars. I need a gold star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. that all helps to get the word out. Um, you know, Dr. Corey, we put together this website, theelusivedream.co, yeah. so that folks could find listening to the podcast a lot easier than mm-hmm. if they go to Spotify or Apple Music. And we also put on that same website the first season reflection guide that is for free. That's right. Yeah. And we also announced in our last podcast episode that we have some important dates coming up this summer. We absolutely do. So we have the Elusive Dream Workshop coming up June 25th. That's a half-day workshop here in Columbus, Ohio. And we are going to be really taking a deeper dive in the material that we covered in Season 1 and really kind of building off of what you're going to be seeing in the Reflection Guide. So pretty excited about that. Hope you all will uh, look out for information on that on the website as well as you will be able to register uh, for the workshop as well. I am also really excited, Pastor Rich, about the Elusive Dream Leaders Retreat. Yes. Oh, man. Really, really excited Mm, about that. mm. That is June. Yes. Ah. (laughs) That's right. That's right. We need that. Come (laughs) on. Come on. Uh, This is June 27th through 29th. It also is going to be in the Columbus, Ohio metro area, and it focuses on a particular population. It's really for people who are religious leaders, clergy, who minister to people of color. Mm -hmm. And the, the aim is to in some ways build on what we've talked about in season one, but more importantly, and even more specifically, it's about providing a space of safety and care for pastors who minister to people of color as well as denominational leaders and so on uh, to provide a place of safety for them to uh, be able to grow in Christ and in their belovedness as as the children of the Most High God and to really um, build community with one another. It's just such an important um, it's so important really to their own health and wellness and their ability to really lead well. So I'm really excited about that too. Right. So all our listeners, you can go to elusivedream.co to find out more information about the workshop, the leaders retreat, the free resources that we have available to share with you in this season, season two of the elusive dream podcast, we're focusing on your latest book, Smart Suits, Tattered Boots. That's right. That's right. So I'm really grateful to be doing that. I'm hoping that it's really spurring on some conversations Mm. and encouraging people to really think about um, how is it that the church can be be engaged in mobilization uh, in the 21st century. And we we highlight three interviews, um, or I interviewed three people here in Columbus, Ohio, Mm And uh, these are individuals who who kind of are living the pages of that book, if yeah. you will, in the way in which they're engaged in mobilizing the black church and the black community. And today's interview uh, with Patia Thomas that mm-hmm. we're going to be 
commenting um, about and commenting on. I first met Pesha at a protest rally here in Columbus, Ohio, and she was the featured protest singer. Mm. She's got an amazing, amazing voice, and she currently works uh, for a faith-based community organization, a Christian organization that has a national presence, Mm -hmm. uh, a state and local chapter Mm -hmm. uh, right here. There was so much in that interview, Dr. Corey, you and I decided that we were going to feature her full length interview in a bonus episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was like, Pastor Rich, thank you so much for doing this interview. I'm so grateful for uh, the time that you were able to spend with her. And I'm so grateful for her sharing what she did. I mean, we're just learning a lot. And I was like, there's just no way. We cannot (laughs) have our listeners hear the whole interview. So we're going to do that. We're going to spend a little bit of time engaging about her and this engaging about what she talked about in the episode today. But yeah, the full the full interview will be coming. Well, let's start this uh, conversation uh, with Patia Thomas when she talks about a calling, a calling in ministry. In fact, uh, one that wasn't equally received. I grew up in the in the in the eighties and nineties in the apostolic church and you had to just be very special to be called by God to be a leader in those mm-hmm. times. Um it, it, you know, you had to have a really strong um, you know, almost uh yeah, I don't know what to call it, I guess perception perceived masculine energy. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. and uh <clears throat> and you had to have gained the respect of of the men, which is which was just really hard to do back then. And I think my struggle to embody uh, the role of a leader uh, just came from that place of being conditioned that that's not usually, um, you know, we usually take a back seat. We usually are modest. We don't we don't usually want to. So like one time, um, the pastor, the new pastor, he was younger. He had asked me to, um, to, to like preach at a Bible study and I was ready. Like I, I knew I was called, like, mm-hmm. even now I'm a heathen and I'm still like, am I supposed to be preaching? Like, um, <laughs> but you know, I said, yeah, like, I was like, yeah, I got, I got something. I, you know, I have stuff prepared. And he was like, oh, you answered too quick. And I'm like, was I supposed to be like, oh no, you know, you know, it was almost like they expected you to say no and shy away and not like, be assertive. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And and I was too eager. So I think I learned that that you're punished for being eager to lead. Pastor Rich, I really appreciate what Patia had to say there. Yeah, what what resonated with you? It just, you know, as a as a black woman who grew up Uh, in the city, first generation, um, feeling like I have certain capacities and skills, you know, you, we aren't socialized to think that we can like lean into that. So to hear that she felt called or she felt like she was a leader and yet that kind of those skills and that calling and those gifts weren't cultivated or when she did have an opportunity, then it was kind of pushed back on when she was too aggressive. I mean, that just that just really resonated with me. And I can I can 
feel that as well. And for me personally, you know, I've talked to you about this, is that this is something that I will have to, I continue to practice, mm-hmm. right? Leaning into um, being a leader, leaning into my giftedness and skills and stepping out, stepping out, because as black women, we don't live in a society that cultivates that, right? right. That, pro- that provides space for that. You have to be intentional about it and you have to be intentional about going against the grain, so to speak, when you do it. Right. Yeah, it it reminded me of episode three from season one mm. in this podcast, The Elusive Dream, mm-hmm. on systems of supremacy and the stories we tell. Yeah. That, that interview with Reverend Ines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who experienced very much uh, a similar story. That's right. That's right. And those things are those things are really those things are painful, and you have to really kind of work at uh, getting over them. But I'm just in, I'm so encouraged by hearing other women, women of color doing that. And I really love also that Patia talked about, you know, not having that perceived masculine energy, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, not being able to come in your full self, right? You feel like you may have to come as somebody that you're not uh, to be recognized. So, I mean, just really a lot, several things she brought up that were uh, so um consistent with what I've heard and what I experienced right. and even what scholarship says. Right. I mean, right. we think about um, Hillary Clinton and, you know, how she was often framed, mm-hmm. you know, given how she, you know, well, we not didn't give her her due in many ways, regardless of what you think about her. That's not the point, but there's a woman that's highly qualified and then how she was framed uh, and ultimately not given, I think the, the due that she should have been given. Um because of how she was, you know, because she, because being a woman, I mean, I think there's so much of that out there. So having to deal with that and yeah. work through that is something that um, sits with me. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate, you know, Patia bringing that up. Yeah. it And it, it really saddened me for one, as a pastor mm. who, who has a relationship in the congregation to see gifts in people, Amen. to provide opportunities for those gifts to be you know, utilized yeah. uh, and developed. Mm-hmm. I, I hold a position of authority yeah, and I hold a position of power that can uh, support someone in the callings that they feel God put on their life. Yeah. I didn't put that calling. The pastor doesn't put that calling on someone's life. Yeah. She, she heard from God Come on now. and she responded to what she sensed the spirit awakening in her. Mm. And so there are members in, in, in their congregation who have gifts but are often overlooked. And it really saddened me that a pastor uh, would not support that. Yeah. Not yeah. come alongside and develop that yeah. and encourage it. Yeah. Pastors pray all the time, Lord, send us leaders. We need leaders. <laughs> and then the Lord send leaders. And you say, well, no, nope, that's too assertive. Nah, Sorry. Sorry, too nope, much. Too that's young. Too, much. Nope, too, too, too female, too woman. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Nah, we don't want, that's too much of that. That's too you much of that. Where's your masculine that's energy? I'm looking for a particular kind of uh, support here. Yeah, uh, right. Lord. Yeah. And, you know, I have to just give you a shout out, Pastor Rich, that you do. I've, I've said this to you before, that I really appreciate your ability to be able to see people's gifts and cultivate them and um, provide space for them to grow. And you definitely do that uh, for all kinds of people in their church and more specifically for females in our church. So thank you. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that, Dr. Corey. And meeting Patia uh, again at that protest rally, hearing her sing, there was one of the things that resonated with me is that I knew 
she had a church background. Mm. She had a God presence and background, mm. even though she was not in a church at that time. Mm-hmm. And it still isn't a part of any uh, Christian church organization. Yeah. That's not how she uh, identifies. Uh, but the spirit is still active mm. <laughs> in her mm-hmm. life and, mm-hmm. and is, mm-hmm. and is using her. And one of the things she shares with me in this interview is uh, the freedom songs that she sings mm. when she's at protest rallies and oh, how yeah. God even opened some doors uh, literally uh, for her to develop an organization to further the freedom song movement here in Columbus, Ohio. Let's listen to Patia talk a little bit about this. We, um, we got some grants so that we could pay artists and we got some signs. Um, we did a kickoff concert. Um, and the goal was just really to bring some music, some healing um, and some motivation and inspiration um, to that time and to be part of the culture that can tell this story through music. So we kicked off a concert, um, the Johnstone uh, Fund for New Music paid for our time at the Maroon Arts uh, Box Park. Um, People had been protesting that day and after they left, they would just congregate right there outside. And it just really became a summer of, you know, showing up on on street corners and, Mm. you know, um, calling out to defund the police. And I thought that Say It Loud was gonna die down, but um, people are still looking to us to see what we're gonna say next. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. Mm, just I, hearing you sing that just right there starts to bring you in mm, right into space of worship, mm-hmm. a space of trusting the Lord yes. with these major things ahead of you, right. right? That there's something about song and something about singing together yes. uh, that unites and brings up in you a, a deep faith, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the role of music. I think of um, a couple of scholars I know. Actually, one of my my one of my people on my dissertation committee wrote a piece about the the power of music and singing together, and how that unifies and connects people. A colleague of mine at OSU talked about um, the power of music as well in one of his works of Inuishinyo, and and I just music just it just does it right there with you singing that. It just brings me right right there and connects me. Um, yeah, so so grateful for what just patient doing that, bringing that in to our to today, right? That's right. Current movements. Yeah, and the, well before George Floyd's murder, uh, Patia was showing up at protests, rallies, and gathering the mm. community with singing. Mm. Each and every time, I mean, every protest that I showed up to. 
Patia was there mm, and mm, she mm. was singing and she was rallying us together around uh, song. And so she started an organization called Say It Loud, uh, which is actually a nod to a protest song from the 60s by James Brown. Say it loud. (laughs) I'm black and I'm proud. Uh -uh. Yeah. So uh, Say It Loud is a is a, a community collective to rally our city around acts and works of justice. And yes. you, you found this as well in your research. Correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. When uh, the black religious leaders who were out there mobilizing for the vote back in 2012 also used song as a way to kind of motivate people and connect people mm. and energize people. Uh, I was at one um, service or organization kind of meeting actually about uh, getting out the vote and somebody was called up to sing a song uh, to the tune of the black spiritual let my people go mm. and they turned it into let my people vote wow. right? where it's like go down to the polls and oh how tell those pharaohs to let my people vote and it was such a powerful moment right Mm -hmm. where people i mean people sang and they stood up and they got connected and it was invigorating uh for people to really mobilize so song is so powerful it's so powerful Uh, it also makes me think about pastor taylor right where he uses uh the genre of hip-hop Right. Mm-hmm. To communicate and to connect. And so, you know, th- we have got to take that seriously. The power of the arts. That's right. Uh, to get us together, to connect us, uh, to move forward. Uh, so really grateful for the kind of work that Patia is doing in that regard. Yes. Yes. And it's that call and response format as mm-hmm. well. Where yes. someone leads out and then everyone responds mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the call that the song leader has put out there. Mm-hmm. Let my people go. That's Let right. my people vote. Come we on. shall overcome. Come on now. And so yes. forth and so on. That is so critically important as well. It's an exchange. The The singing is an exchange. The song is an exchange. The freedom music is an exchange, you know, together that, that builds uh, people up. And so this is just one of the ways in which Patia has uh, contributed to the movement here mm. in Columbus, mm-hmm. Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also... Uh, on staff with a faith-based uh, community organization, faith-based Christian organization. And uh, in this next segment of the interview, Patia, uh shares with us the, uh, the issue of defunding the police mm. and how this particular issue uh, was, was met with some change uh, from an unlikely place. I realize that defunding is a behavior um, that requires a systemic approach. And it is one Mm -hmm. behavior leading to a reimagined public safety where we no longer perceive that we need police because policing is in itself inherently racist and Mm anti-Black. And so... Um, then it became like, how can we transform public safety? Because um, the because what's going to happen, like you said, this is not only a multi-state issue. Uh, Joe Biden just got done saying in the State of the Union address that he's going to fund police even more. He's going to increase police funding. And Democrats and Republicans gave him a standing ovation for that. Mm. So 
This is state-sanctioned violence against our people, and it is um, it is it, safety as a whole is challenged. So when we're unhoused, we're not safe. So housing is a basic public safety need. So what Pesha points out here is that there is a real tension between addressing local issues as well as those issues that are uh, national. And, and, and the way in which we go about addressing them has an impact on one another. They both um, inter- interact with each other. Yeah, if yeah. I'm addressing issues of police brutality here in this city, I'm, I'm not just ignoring what's happening in other cities around the country. That's right. And That's I'm right. not also to just be satisfied, if you will, with progress in our city mm-hmm. when we don't see that progress in other cities around the country. That's They're right. all interconnected. So true. So true. This is particularly the case, right, when we see uh, the same kinds of manifestations across cities, where we see these killings of unarmed black people across cities, right, different regions of the country, different people, different young people, older people, males, females being killed, unarmed, being killed by police. Uh, And so we have to recognize that this isn't just a local issue when we see something happening across space. Uh, we see that this is a macro level issue and we have to recognize that. And I really appreciate that Patia brought up that, you know, we have to see what happened, right? There was what happened when, when we have all these protests against uh, police brutality. We do see some changes as we talked about in our last episode at That's the right. local level here in Columbus, but then at the federal level, we see strong bipartisan support for an increase in funding for the police. That's right. And what does that communicate? Well, it it communicates that this this the issues that we are facing are not one sided. Mm-hmm. Number one, Come and on it also highlights that uh, individuals uh, are. Our, our white siblings, regardless of their political affiliation, That's can right. uphold systems and structures of white supremacy. So true. So true. And, it, and it's not just with, as um, was mentioned, as it relates to the as it relates to the new the increase in funding for the police. We've seen this in the past. Right? right. I mean, we don't we don't talk about uh, the fact that we see this mass incarceration and this major increase in the mass incarceration of black and brown people. One of the largest increases happened under a Democratic president. That person is President Bill Clinton. We also have to recognize that President Bill Clinton passed a major crime bill that um, led to major increase in funding for federal prisons. We have to acknowledge that, right? 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 We can't ignore that that the issues that are particularly germane to the experiences of black people and brown people in this country have not been fully taken up by either party. Uh, And on top of that, we have to be careful to pay attention to what people are doing and not just what they're saying. You know, because what you say and what you do are two different things. And so I, I I think it's really important that we pay attention to what is actually happening. What are people doing? What are people supporting uh, in the end? In this next clip of the interview with uh, Pesha, she speaks uh, a little bit more specifically about this challenge of working within a structure 
that gives lip service, uh, but doesn't follow it up with the behaviors and, mm. and the funding to support and maintain focus on issues affecting the black community. Mm. All right. Ready to listen to that. It's a rude awakening for me because I didn't know this. I'm new to FBCOs. And mm. so I wasn't aware um, about the very, um, a uh, very temporal nature of the mm-hmm. support um, for this work um, mm-hmm. and, and how, and the systems that guide it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm currently actually at a crossroads because um, it is democracy time. So it's time for FBCOs to focus on democracy and to focus on what the primarily white um, funders want them to focus on. And so mm-hmm. since it's been two years since we watched a public execution, that ha- that urgency for many, you know, white progressives has died down. And, yeah. mm-hmm. and now the funding is going toward, you know, voter protection and things that will last for a season. Um, and so it, it I am at a crossroads um, because I have decided that I need to keep my eyes on the prize. Pastor Rich. Pastor Rich. Dr. Corey, Dr. Corey. Patricia, <laughs> wow. I tell you, when I listened to this part of the interview that you did with her and she was talking about her experience working in faith-based community organizing, I couldn't, it was exactly what we found, mm. uh, Michelle Yakala and I that faith-based community organizations do a lot of do a lot of the work, right? And mm. they are actively engaged in cities mobilizing over particular issues. But when it comes to the funding and when it comes to what's ultimately guiding it kind of behind the string behind the scenes, you know, it's kind of like who is, you know, who is Oz back there? Right. I mean, we're talking about major players in the social and political field in the United States. And these are, these are people who have uh, funding of money. And I, I thought it was kind of interesting. She said, Hey, it's democracy time. Wow. It's democracy time. Wow. Uh, and, and so that actually made me think about, and I didn't talk about, we didn't talk about this in the book, but I actually had an opportunity to speak to somebody who was actively engaged in local action and community organizing and he, this person just really bemoaned the fact that at the time when you have these, this time to vote or you got to get the votes out, that's where the money's coming from. And he, and he talked to me about, you know, it, it feels so disingenuous to go out here, going door to door, getting people registered to vote, encouraging them to vote, and then we're not really helping them with the real issues on the ground. Right. Yeah. That, you know, what is this about? So it just makes you wonder what is the main aim um, behind these organizations? I I should say, I actually do believe the people that are actually mobilizing in them, I believe they're aiming to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But they themselves are beholden to uh, sort of the funders behind the scenes. Right. And Many so what their jobs do, are they're, on the line. Their jobs are on the line, right. literally. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they have to make choices about what they're going to do and how they're going to mobilize. Uh, And if it's, quote-unquote, democracy time, it's democracy time. 
And what Pesha ended with is that for her, she's got to keep her eyes on the prize. Eyes on the prize. And so for her personally, uh, I really sense that she's calculating mm. that risk of whether to stay engaged and mm. involved and employed by uh, this FBCO mm. or to choose another path. That's uh, right. Because the, the issue has to be addressed. It has to be and addressed. And she spoke about this personally, as listeners will find in our bonus uh, episode of the full-length interview. Mm-hmm. She's directly impacted by these issues. Yeah. It affects her livelihood and right. her children's livelihood. Mm-hmm. So she is directly connected to this issue. That's absolutely right. And it also makes me think about the importance of the black church and the role that black religious leaders have played in the past in issues that are, that are particular to the black community, because this isn't a temporal issue. You know, the, the, the consequences of being black and living black in the United States, that's not temporal. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not, we're not, those consequences don't just come when it's not democracy time. Right. It's all the, you know, it's all the time. And so if we don't have uh, a mobilizing effort that keeps the eyes keeps our eyes on the prize which is you know we have not yet overcome now we may overcome but we have not yet gotten there right right? and so we have to continue to build the kinds of coalitions the kinds of movements that are centered on the issues of social injustice social inequality that are affecting us as black people and our other Brothers and sisters, too, brown people, Asians in America as well. And so here we are, Dr. Corey. It's it's the end of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and we had uh, three wonderful uh, guests that we interviewed for this season two mm-hmm. of the Elusive Dream podcast. I want to remind our listeners we have a bonus episode coming out for the interview with Patia Thomas, and uh, we'll be sharing ways in which you can uh, listen and support her organization, Say It Loud, uh, because we believe that uh, mobilizing the black church and mobilizing for change includes mm. the arts. Mm. It includes yeah. uh, the voices of folks we are not listening to. Come on now. And we need to pay attention. Notice and pay attention right Absolutely. here. Change is going to come. One day. One day. Yeah. So That's Pastor another Rich, hey, it's at the end of the episode. You know what we got to say, right? I know what we got to say, Dr. Corey. The dream may be elusive. But it is attainable. attainable. Peace out, y'all. Deuces. <laughs>